Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out what it's like to come face to face with a very large, giant Pacific octopus and what it's like to make friends with one. We meet two classmates of a nine-year-old boy who disappeared on his way to school in the Toronto suburb of Etobicoke way back in 1975. Now, nearly 50 years later, they're trying to find out more about what happened to him. You've heard of express lanes at grocery stores. Well, how about a slow lane to help older customers fight social isolation and loneliness? It's called a chat checkout, and one Dutch grocery chain will have more than 200 of them by the end of this year. Could it work here at home? But first, seven years ago on the campaign trail, future Prime Minister Justin Trudeau declared his government would never buy the Lockheed Martin F-35 stealth fighter jet. Well, today, his defense minister announced Canada is spending $19 billion to buy not one, but 88 of them to replace the country's aging fleet of CF-18s. Is it the right choice? And if so, why did it take so long to make it? Well, first up, speaking of the 90s, this is how far back this story goes. It was all the way back in 1997 when this country signed up as an informed partner to the U.S.-led joint strike fighter effort to produce a next-generation high-tech stealth aircraft, a project that would ultimately culminate with the Lockheed Martin F-35. That was the fighter that the Harper government sort of announced they would be buying to replace the aging fleet of CF-18s 12 years ago, back in 2010. Then they kind of faffed and reversed course and, and when costs began to skyrocket and there were questions about the contract and or if there was a contract. Uh, so ultimately it was gone. This was the same fighter jet that the now Prime Minister Justin Trudeau claimed Canada would never buy while he was in power because it wasn't needed and didn't work. Here he is on the campaign trail in 2015. A Liberal government will also do what the Harper Conservatives ought to have said years ago. We will not buy the F-35 fighter jet. Well, guess what they did today? They bought the F-35 fighter jet. More than 25 years later, the RCAF will, in fact, replace its desperately aging fleet of CF-18s with 88 F-35s. The cost, an estimated $19 billion, that includes most of the upfront stuff like training and so on. The cost estimate for the entire life cycle of the fighter jets is expected to be more around $70 billion. Here is the Defence Minister, Anita Anand, making the announcement today. Canada is acquiring a new fleet of 88 state-of-the-art F-35 fighter jets through an agreement that we have finalized with the United States government and Lockheed Martin with Pratt & Whitney. Well, the first of those aircraft is set to be delivered in 2026, so not too far down the road. The full fleet is expected to reach operational capability between 2032 and 2034. So what's changed since 2015 for this government? The defense minister said it was a, quote, highly complex procurement. And she also says that since 2015, when the prime minister uttered, the future prime minister then uttered those famous words that the aircraft has matured and that, of course, many of our allies, eight countries in particular, are using those same F-35s. With Russia's illegal and unjustifiable invasion of Ukraine and China's increasingly assertive behavior in the Indo-Pacific. This project has taken on heightened significance, especially given the importance of interoperability with our allies. 
the Defence Minister Anita Anand today. Joining me now is David Perry. He's President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and host of the Defence Deconstructed podcast. Welcome to the show. Good to talk to you. So not a big surprise here. We'd seen some reports uh, before New Year's that this was coming. Is this the right choice? Have they picked the right jet? Yeah, I think they did. You know, a couple ways to look at that. One is it's the uh, jet that won the competition that we undertook at great length. Uh, and we went through lots of effort to open that up uh, as wide a playing field as we could. Uh, and at the end of that, uh, this aircraft was selected. So, you know, by definition, it's the right one. Beyond that, though, I think it it's the right choice for a number of different reasons, including the fact that it's in modern production uh, and is going to be widely used amongst many of Canada's key allies. I mean, there will be different locations that we would tend to fly out of um, by virtue of the way that our aircraft operates, that are be operating this exact same aircraft um, all over the world. So that's an advantage, right? If you need to fly and land somewhere in the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, Germany, Finland, Italy, there will be other uh, air forces that are operating the exact same plane. So that helps if you if you need to, to land and have access to facilities or get get something fixed, be able to use the same kind of planning software and types of things that go into operating it. That's an advantage. Beyond that, I think it's also going to be very helpful that in terms of the way that the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force actually uses the plane um, that we'll have our closest allies to work with uh, in terms of how we actually employ it, you know, the tactics, the techniques, the procedures we use, developing doctrine, doing common training. Um, there'll be all kinds of advantages that come with operating an aircraft uh, that many of our closest allies will also be flying. I wasn't, uh, it always reminds me, I was looking back at, uh, at at articles that were written, you know, this has been going on for a very long time, this whole project to replace the CF-18s. I mean, it was time for replacements, clearly. Yes, uh, I think as a general rule, you want your pilots flying airplanes that aren't significantly older than they are. <laughs> and the CF-18s were, were, even with the new ones, I mean, I gather there's been some, some real impacts. We've seen some real um, impacts of late, especially with just how... Uh, I wouldn't say incapable, but but how stretched we are, how, you know, we're not really able to pull our weight in some extent when it comes to some extent when it comes to helping our allies because of the age of our aircraft. Yes. And just one clarification there. I mean, the, the airplanes are new to us, uh, mm-hmm. the ones that we got. They're not new. Uh, the uh, Royal Australian Air Force quite well enjoyed them for the several decades with which they operated them. So, you know, we're talking about a fleet uh, that is well past the point that in its entirety uh, should have been retired. And it has gone through an upgrade uh, process uh, that's, you know, basically given that platform the right kind of structural characteristics so that it's it's not a safety issue to continue flying an old airplane. They they fixed the stuff that needed to be fixed from a, a structural point of view, and they've done some upgrades, including new radars and some other things to update the uh, operational capability aspect of the airplane. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's aircraft delivered in the 1980s versus ones that are being delivered at the end of the 2020s. So massive difference in terms of the technology that we will be getting and what we will be retiring um, should have been retired long ago. We're finally doing that. But in part because of the age of those planes, um, there were significant limitations in terms of what we could actually do because they're not as available as they once were. Uh, and I think there's uh, some relationship with some of the, the personnel problems the Air Force has had, uh, which has basically meant that we haven't we don't have nearly enough people flying these. And that's not going to be easy. I mean, we can't just bring in new aircraft like the F-35, even though we're expecting them relatively soon by by procurement standards. Um, This is going to demand some work within the RCAF to try and prepare for the arrival of these planes. Absolutely. So you basically need to have a 
a synchronized handoff between flying and operating the ones that we have now, sending more people, which are in short supply already, down to the United States to start doing the initial training, uh, which would first train the people that would basically become our own training instructors uh, for Canadian aircraft uh, and do that in a couple of batches and then start uh, getting delivery of air, aircraft, um, a squadron's worth at a time that can come back to, to Canada. But that process of doing that when you're already stretched and you have operational commitments now to maintain our NORAD commitments, uh, to be able to do the different commitments that we have uh, in place to, to NATO, as well as you know the things that we may pick up uh, here and there, things like air policing uh, in Romania, as an example, if we go back to doing that at some point, um, those I think are going to put a real stress on the Air Force, uh, which has been stretched in terms of the availability of uh, the number of humans that it's got in its ranks that are trained to, to operate and maintain uh, this particular piece of kit. When you look at the price tag, it, it always seems high. Um, is this a fair price? Are we getting bang for our buck, so to speak? Well, it's definitely going to be expensive. I think, you know, effectively any uh, modern fighter aircraft is expensive. I think one of the unique things of the the way that we are buying this, but through the international partnership for the Joint Strike Fighter, which is producing the F-35, complicated arrangement between different governments. But basically, at the end of the day, that means that when we buy it, we will be buying it at the best price that you can get it, uh, even though that will be a lot of money. Clearly, there's been a lot of politics around this one, David. Uh, we know the Conservative government announced this very plain would replace our aging fleet uh, a decade ago. Then the Liberals came in and said, we'll never buy that plane. Um, today, Anita Nand was asked about that. She said, this is a different plane. This is a plane that's matured, this jet. Is that true? It is true. Uh, so I think, you know, a way of thinking about it uh, would be that if in 2010 you'd wanted to go buy it, an iPhone, that phone was going to be fundamentally different than an iPhone you'd buy today. It's not a perfect analogy, but you know there's some similarities there. The, the performance and the capability of the current blocks that we would be getting has evolved a lot over time. It's a, So the, the physical airplane itself doesn't change all that much, but the, the software that really gives it most of its uh, performance aspects to it, that c- continues to evolve over time. So it's gotten more sophisticated as time has gone on. Uh, the other thing with it is that uh, back in the 2010 time, frame, that particular aircraft and the project for it was going through a, a lot of teething pains. There was a lot of mm-hmm. developmental problems in terms of getting some of the performance aspects just out of the actual plane itself, in addition to a, a number of different software issues. We've had a lot of time to resolve a lot of that. So it, and I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that it it's the same uh, moniker, but it isn't the exact same plane that we be, we're going to be getting towards the ends of the uh, 2020s. Then we would have got, you know, in kind of in the mid 2010s, had we followed through on the conservative government promise. Beyond that, though, I do think that it's a bit of a, a overstatement to say that that's really the only reason that the liberal government and the liberal party in the past had made the kind of comments uh, that I think were pretty ill considered at the time that they did. Yeah, it feels like this is one of those situations where the previous Harper government can be blamed for sort of a contract process that, you know, overselling it, a contract process that didn't go very well. But it certainly wasn't helped by a statement saying, like, we didn't need this plane, uh, we'll never buy this plane. It seems that that it's been mishandled for a long time. And that's kind of indicative of, of a lot of the issues we're having with procurement. Yeah, I think this file in particular uh, is one in that a whole lot of people uh, did not cover themselves in glory uh, and moving forward on it. The current government, I think, ended up in the right spot. But, you know, you do wonder how much quicker we could have gotten here had we not had uh, the first couple of years that they were in office. Prime Minister, for however came to be that he said it, you know, get up in Parliament and say that it was a plane that didn't work and might not ever work uh, within a couple of months of 
uh, it actually hitting initial operating capability in the United States. So not very well informed comments from him at the time. And the whole idea that we were going to have an open competition, but one plane wouldn't be part of it was also a pretty significant head scratcher, at least to me. Yeah, and when we look at what's happened, even the last, uh, I mean, this this had happened in 2014. I mean, Russia had already, you know, gone into Ukraine in 2014, annexed Crimea, and so on. So it's not like the geopolitical situation has changed phenomenally. I mean, already China was already seen as a threat in the, in the you know, in the Pacific. Uh, those were the things brought up today about why we had to do this. But do you get the impression there was now more pressure on Canada to at least get our act together when it came to 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 replacing the F-18s and that certainly the F-35 because of its interoperability was going to be the one that was being pressured? I do think that there's more, you know, pressure in a couple of different ways. Um, You know, our allies, not just in the United States, but in the NATO alliance more broadly are are looking at all of each other to, uh, for indications of what we are collectively doing. Certainly some other NATO allies since the Russia further invasion of Ukraine this February ago um, have really stepped up with a lot broader and more significant commitments than Canada has to this point in time. So us finally coming through and delivering on a commitment to actually buy a modern fighter aircraft is a a good indicator to them that we're finally not just talking about some things, but we're actually moving towards the doing of of modernization when it comes to our military. Beyond that, I mean, Canada, for our own national interest uh, reasons, we needed a new air plane. The ones we're flying right now were delivered in the early 1980s. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's never good when fighter pilots are fighter pilots are flying aircraft that are older than they are, unless they're in an air show, right? That's the. Uh, uh, what are you going to look out for now? I mean, the announcement's been made. We know that before uh, before Christmas, there was some noise about the early deliveries in 2026 of the first batch. Uh, what are you looking out for now to make sure that this goes according to plan? Uh, less less attention about when we actually get the planes, um, because I think that's probably the easier component on that. If you look both what has already been contracted for F-35 deliveries, there's the last couple of batches that, that we actually have contracts in place for now. It's amounting to several hundred aircraft. You would expect that that number would be growing when the batches that we're going to be putting in orders as part of uh, are actually committed. This is all kind of convoluted bureaucratic process about um, how you actually go and and get an airplane because we're part of this international partnership agreement. So you have to follow the rules of that. And and the net upshot of that is you put in orders when you're able to put in orders and that's driven by a a wide pool of allies. But the benefit of that is you're you're doing it at a time when hundreds of other planes are being made. Um, So making the planes is probably the easier part. Um, because we don't have enough pilots to fly the existing fleet that we've got right now. So there's a, a an issue there. And then we also have to do both kind of a wholesale adaptation of how the Air Force operates to move from 1970s technology to current technology. So there's a big change with that. And we also have to build the infrastructure that's unique to this airplane, which has some special considerations that the the old ones didn't. And I suspect that getting the human capital in place, getting the infrastructure in place and uh, adapting, you know, what the what the Air Force does to actually uh, fly and operate this successfully, um, that's going to be harder than it is to actually get airframes in Canada. But at long last, it feels like this conversation started when all of us were much younger. So it's interesting to see that it's finally here we are in 2023 with this announcement at long last. Uh, David Perry, thank you so much. Yeah, great to talk to you. We'll end this Monday night with the quite the encounter. Now, it didn't happen in the open ocean, I have to say. It happened in an aquarium, uh, a very large one, a tank, better yet. But it is the story, quite the remarkable story, shared by one gentleman who worked at the Vancouver Aquarium many, many years ago now. Um, 
And it's reminiscent of something. You may have seen this Academy Award-winning Netflix documentary in the not-so-distant past. Uh, Craig Foster is the focus of it. An octopus is also the focus of it. It came under a fair amount of criticism for some of the um, some of the overtones. <laughs> but here is a trailer of my octopus friend. A lot of people say an octopus is like an alien. But the strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realize that you're very similar in a lot of ways. It's a hard thing to explain, but sometimes you just get a feeling and you know there's something to this creature that's very unusual. There's something to learn here. I had to have a radical change in my life. And the only way I knew to do it was to be in this ocean with her. And then I had this crazy idea. What happens if I just went every day? And indeed he does. Now, it's an interesting film. It came under criticism because of the way it sort of very much turns into a human story and how the octopus fits into it. Forget all that stuff. Um, this is just a story about, I mean, I find octopuses to be incredibly cool. They're incredibly cool animals. And of course, there are a lot of them out here on the Pacific coast. Uh, the giant Pacific octopus is, I believe, the biggest out there. And every once in a while, people have encounters with them. This is somewhat different. Um, yes, indeed, my next guest did come face-to-face with a giant Pacific octopus, but he did so while working at the Vancouver Aquarium. There is a Pacific Northwest tank where they had a great giant Pacific octopus. Um, and the rest of the story, I'll let him tell it because it's much more interesting that way. Jer Thorpe is a writer and author of Living in Data, A Citizen's Guide to a Better Information Future. Uh, he hosts something called the Once Upon a Checklist podcast. He did live in Vancouver. He now lives in Brooklyn, but he shared this story on social media recently about something that happened to him in 1999, and people simply loved it. So he's here to share this story with us tonight. Jared Thorpe, thank you for your time. Hey, no problem, Ben. Good to talk to you. So- so, so let's take a step back. I mean, this goes back a while, almost a quarter century at this point. Amazing to think. In 1999 <laughs> was that long ago. But you were working at the Vancouver Aquarium. Yeah, I, you know, I'd really lucked into this job when I was in university. I remember seeing the, uh, the sort of call for it and thought, oh, my God, I've always wanted to do that. You know, when I was, when I was six and seven, my parents uh, I only had one thing that I wanted to do for, for my birthday, was to go to the aquarium. You know, that's, that's what I would do. So I ended up with this, yeah, really amazing job there. I was there for four years, and sort of by the end of it, I was on the dive team, which meant... I got to get into the shark exhibit or, you know, occasionally with the beluga whales, but, but really often in this Pacific Northwest exhibit, which was just an awesome thing to be able to do every day yeah. <laughs> get in the water with these animals. What was in that one? I mean, I, sh- I could guess, but what was in that one? There's a whole bunch of really amazing animals there, but the, you know, the one that I'm really talking about <laughs> the most yeah. in the story is this giant Pacific octopus. Yeah, they're amazing. I mean, I, people who don't know that the Pacific Northwest has these remarkably large and very cool-looking uh, octopi or <laughs> octopuses. I'm not yeah. sure plurals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good question, too. Yeah. You, octopuses is technically right, but no one's going to care. So you can do octopi <laughs> or you can just do octopus. It doesn't really, right. doesn't really matter. Yeah, right. you know, they're the biggest, They are the biggest octopus in the world by like a fair margin these are these are really big animals 
you know, there there have been reports of, of them being up up to 300 pounds but more typically you know you can think of them as like the size of a medium-sized dog wow because we saw one recently there was a video shot off of vancouver island of a very large giant pacific octopus uh clinging on to a fishing net i mean it lets go but it but it raised with it this thing was enormous as you mentioned you know the tentacles are like the size of a human arm they're massive well, they're indescribably weird, so it's hard for us to even try like to describe them. I was trying to remember in my mind how big this one was, and it, it's hard to say because they're not like us, you know, where I can only stretch my arms out so far, and that's as far as they go. Like they're kind of rubbery, so they, they can stretch themselves out really, really, really far. Yeah. And so, you know, this one certainly, from one tip of it, its arm to the other, was like at the very least probably three meters, and and probably closer to four. And not to mention they can make themselves very small too, right? So they're deceptive. You're right. They're deceptive in their size. So what happened? This, I mean, I gather because um, I was mentioning my wife does a bit of diving and it's the most elusive thing to see, even obviously out in the wild, out in the sea, is the giant octopus because they tend to hide out, right? They don't, they're not, yeah. I mean, they, they circulate, but they do tend to keep to themselves and keep hidden. Yeah. So, you know, I, I suited up and I was kind of tromping my way over to the exhibit and I ran into this guy. He was the one who takes care of the exhibit. It's an easy name to remember. His name was John Fisher. And, <laughs> uh, great, and John, great, yeah. John said, hey, listen, Jared, the, the octopus has uh, some parasites on it right now. They're like these little worms. This is not an, an, an atypical thing to see on octopuses in the wild or other fish and animals in the wild. And he, he said, I, I don't know. I was thinking maybe we could just try plucking them off. So, so you know, we don't want to have to so, haul so, the so, octopus out there, out of there, and and you know so try you to go treat do it. it. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so you go do it. Well, the, part of the reason is this: this, this there's no guarantee that you're gonna like the octopus is gonna come out. Like right. it's not a trained animal, and so you know, I would say one one in ten times you would have a chance of kind of seeing it. So this first time, I got in the water octopus comes out. It actually comes like reasonably close to me, and so I. I just kind of reached out as far as I could and puck, plucked off one of these things. <laughs> That's awfully <laughs> courageous of you. Well, you know, they're not a, they're not a dangerous animal. No, true You enough. know, it, one of the things that I've learned in all my rest of my wildlife work over the years is that the vast majority of animals want to get out of your way. I wouldn't want to, like, wrestle with one, you know, but, but you know, it's not something, an animal that you would at all have to be afraid of. And in fact, it was definitely afraid of me. Like, I plucked, I plucked that little thing off of it and it, it changed color. They, you know, they change color when they're to show emotion and then it just like darted back into its den. And I thought, well, that was kind of a failed experiment. But it wasn't. You went back. It wasn't. Yeah. Well, next, the next day, actually, I'm back in there again. Octopus comes out. It came close to me again. I didn't really think that much about it right at the moment, but then I, I so I plucked one of these one of these things off it, and it changed color again, and it kind of backed up a little bit, but didn't go back into its den. And I thought, well, might as well get another one. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I plucked another one, and and it and it kind of like let me do that. I could tell this time that it was not it was not avoiding me. And then this really miraculous thing happened starting the next day, which is that. As soon as I got in the water, the octopus came out, and it came real close to me this time. And and there was so I think there was maybe only a few of these things left. So I plucked one off, and and it came closer. And then before you know it, I'm sort of half sitting on the on the the ground of this exhibit. It's kind of rocky, and I have this fifty pound octopus in my lap. <laughs> like it's it's actually like in my lap. 
So octopus have eyes that are similar to ours. They, they're anatomically very similar to ours. And so you can kind of see where they're looking. And this octopus was looking at me. Wow. And they can only look with one eye at a time because they're on the size of their head. But it was like really close. I mean, just imagine you have a dog on your lap, but just change your, your image. And it's this giant red octopus. Yeah. And, and, and some, at some point during that dive, the octopus started like kind of feeling me. It was like touching around my, my mask. It sort of found this this patch of of bare skin that was on my neck, and and it touched me there. And octopuses, the tentacles are sensory organs, right? So they can taste and feel with them. So it was like kind of giving me a a taste, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out what I was all about. And at the at the exactly the same time, I'm kind of. I'm kind of like petting it like you would pet a dog. Just are they slimy or are they dry? What do they feel like? I mean, it's in the uh, water, right? They so were cold. It was cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't wear gloves on purpose because I wanted to be more nimble with being able to like pluck those little things off. So my right. hands were quite cold, you know. They're very smooth when they want to be. You know, octopuses, this is, we can just talk more and more about how weird they are, but they can change the texture of their skin as well. So sometimes they can be very smooth and other times they can be really spiky. And, but it, it, it kind of, it felt like you were touching skin, you know, with maybe like a little bit of a loose, looser skin on top of it. Like, I, it's hard to describe. I, I don't, it is, I, it don't, is. I haven't yeah. had anything similar when I've been like, oh, that real, that feels exactly like that octopus did. <laughs> exactly. And this went on for a while, right? Like this was, uh, this, this went on for some time when you come in, it would kind of yeah. recognize yeah, for... you, which is in of itself. If you've been in an aquarium, like, you know, I love fish, yeah. but, but they're not, you know, they're not necessarily the kinds of creatures that recognize people, right? But we, you know, we know that they're amongst the most intelligent non-human animals. And so, um, so yeah, for about a month, every time me and, and I, and only I, none of the other divers, <laughs> as soon as I got in the water, it would come out. And one of the mysteries that sort of John and I would talk about that we never really solved was how did it know it was me? Because it knew right away, like the very second I got in the water, it knew that it was me. And it's mysterious to me, but octopus, obviously, they have like all these types of abilities and senses. Like if you could feel with your whole, all every piece of skin on your body, maybe you would have some opportunity to like recognize the splash somebody made. Maybe that was it. I don't really know. And yeah, so for a month, we had this kind of, it was amazing. It was a friendship. You know, we, we, we would hang out together and the dives are pretty short because we have a just a they call it a pony tank of air and, and so you have maybe 10 10 minutes 15 minutes down there but it was one of the favorite times of my life because it's it sounds remarkable it was a I mean, miracle you know and then one day it stopped as you write yeah one day one day it didn't come out of its yeah day. yeah one day um it it just didn't come and I was, you know, obviously a little disappointed. Uh, and that wasn't to say that I would never see it again. It would it would still come out, but it wouldn't sort of do that sort of same thing that it did before. And, you know, maybe maybe it had, it had found out everything it needed to know about me. But I, who knows? This is the thing with other intelligences, right? It's like easy for us to try to map our own human feelings to it. It just tr- transformed me in a lot of ways, that, that experience. It sounds it. 
It sounds, you know, obviously, you know, there was some criticism of my octopus teacher. I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I imagine you probably saw it because, uh, or maybe, ben, maybe ben, did. I, I didn't see it. You know, you I have this weird block around that movie and I, Good. You know, I think it Good. might, it might be like, I don't know. Like if you've climbed, climbed Mount Everest, maybe you don't want to watch a movie about climbing Mount Everest. I yeah. don't know. It's like, I don't, I have no, I probably have to talk to a psychiatrist about why I haven't seen that movie. You know, yeah, it came under criticism, of course, just for the way it describes the relationship. And it felt a bit like it just, it all got a bit out of hand, but you do watch it and understand. And I think maybe it's because I have no idea. I've never been face to face with an octopus, but something to do with their solitary nature. There's something about them that is so incredible. I mean, I think even from through, through a tank or from a distance, they're such incredibly fascinating creatures that we can't help but be sort of mystified and captivated by them. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that is because if I asked a child to kind of draw what they thought an alien would look like, they, they want an alien to look something like us, right? So they give it a head and they give it like a, a torso and maybe like an octopus are just built entirely differently than we are. You know, except for maybe those eyes that I talked about, there's like not a lot of, of common ground. And so when we see an octopus, there is that kind of feeling of alienness to them. They they are so weird, and we don't know anything about them, right? We like we it, they're a hard animal to study because that you, you you can keep them in captivity, but we don't really know how they exist in the in the wild. Like I don't know, there was a story that came out maybe about two years ago where they had found this. They called it the octopus garden, but it was like this place where all these octopus would come and hang out together, which previously we had not understood them at all as social animals. But here was this like place they where they found all these octopus hanging out. So it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe there's something going on with these animals that we just we just can't comprehend, or yeah, we don't get to spend enough time with them to find out. And, and the reaction to to you sharing the story, which is which is not new, but uh, it has been pretty wonderful, hasn't it? <laughs> you know, I, I posted it. I don't even know why why I reposted it. Uh, I posted it and I went to bed, you know, and, and I woke up in the morning and <laughs> said to my partner, I was like, Nora, my octopus story has a million views, <laughs> just kind of all day long. And yes, you know, still today, you know, I just keep on getting all these people who who are delighted by this story, too. But then another thing I, I hear from a lot of people are their own stories about experiences, sometimes with octopus, but other times just with other wildlife, where where they had these these times where they felt there was a real connection between them and a wild thing. I think maybe we just need, you know, it's, it's 2022 was tough, 2021 was tough, 2020 was pretty tough. A good story, <laughs> a good story, you know, something to sort of warm the human and not human soul. It's probably a good one as well. Jeremy. More feel-good octopus stories. I am here for more feel-good octopus stories on Twitter. Well, Jared Thorpe, thanks so much for sharing this one. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Well, this is a really interesting story coming up. First, Jim in Winnipeg says, Chat Checkout has existed for years in Canadian grocery stores. The date nights are held monthly in many large supermarkets. So you go, singles are able to meet uh, and many people met and married. I didn't know that. I'd never been to a date night at a grocery store, but I guess that's something similar. I mean, it, it's important when we were talking about this in the last half hour in the Netherlands, this one grocery chain has set up something called the chat checkout. It's a slow lane, essentially, as opposed to an express lane where people can stop and meet and chat or to help prevent social isolation for seniors. This is why it was created. It certainly allows them to take their time, not to feel rushed, to stop and chat and converse with somebody. Uh, 
as they're doing their daily shop or their weekly shop, whatever it may be. Uh, we see it at banks too. I was noticing the other day there was a chair at my bank that was not there in the past where, uh, and it's so rare that I go into the bank where people could sit and chat or at least take their time. It's interesting how institutions that are used more frequently uh, by older folks have also started to learn the value of providing them with the kind of attention and atmosphere that they want. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. I hope it continues. Well, we all have memories, I think, of events that happened around us when we were young that sort of pierced the bubble for us, that pierced the bubble of childhood to some extent, made us understand that where we lived was part of a much bigger world where bad things and good things, in this case, bad things, also happened, ones that hit close to home. In my case, um, I had an aunt and uncle who lived in Etobicoke, which is an out on the outskirts of Toronto right near where the airport is, um, on the western side of Toronto. And when I was in my teens, an eight-year-old named Nicole Moray disappeared from the same stretch of street where they lived. There was massive high-rises in that area. Thousands of people lived there. She lived in one of those buildings. And Nicole Moray vanished without a trace in July of 1985. Never seen again, as far as I know. Uh, the, the case remains unsolved. To this day, she's never been found. And that to me, you know, I was I'm living in Montreal at the time, but seeing the news, seeing the police investigations, the reports and so on, knowing that area, I felt like it hit very close to home. It was the first time that something of that magnitude had happened somewhere that I had spent time in, even as a kid. And that is the case for the two people in this next story. The disappearance for them, it was the disappearance of a classmate, a grade four student at Parkfield Public School in the very same Toronto suburb of Etobicoke 10 years earlier in 1975. No link that we know of. Absolutely not. Still, same neighborhood. On the morning of January 29th, 1975, Simon Wilson vanished on his way to school. He was a grade four student, again, at Parkfield Public School. It sparked a massive search for the nine-year-old, a search that continues to this day. He vanished, it seems, without a trace, as far as we know. And now, nearly 48 years later, the memories of that time and that disappearance continue to linger for those who remember the boy. Um, and they include my next two guests. Craig Wallace and Laura Brown were classmates of Wilson's in that grade four class. And of late, they've been trying to find out what happened. They've been trying to pick up some of the loose threads to this story, going back in time to see what was reported then, trying to go through genealogy and so forth, to try to find some answers to this mystery that they remember to this day. And Craig and Laura join me now. Craig from Hamilton and Laura from Cornwall in Ontario. Thank you both for your time tonight. Thank you for having us. Tell me a bit about your memories of that day nearly 50 years ago now, because you, you, you explained it in the article about how your memories are really about your mom and about breakfast yeah. the next morning. So Thursday, January the 30th, 1975, um, I guess the day before I hadn't realized Simon wasn't at school, but, you know, kids are get sick and such. Anyway, on uh, my mom always listened to the radio while we had breakfast and, uh, they announced that uh, nine-year-old Simon Wilson, a student at Parkfield Public School where Laura and I went, he, he was reported missing. He, on, he had vanished on his way to school. And I think I nearly spit out my cereal. 
probably and, both did that. Yeah. 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 You both and remember that. You both remember that day. Then I'm sure your mom was the same as mine, Laura. I mean, my the look on my mother's face it was just horror stricken. Yeah, then, you just what? And then I think my mother probably kind of turned it off as quickly as she could, so I couldn't hear anything. Yeah, I think back to those days. I mean, it was it was a different time, wasn't it? We weren't nearly as um, aware of these things. I don't think, or 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 at least the, the you know the kind of. Even the media around it wasn't nearly as as um, you know as huge as it would be later later in life or later in the years. Uh, uh, Laura, tell me a bit about your memories of of him because it's hard. I was trying to think back about kids I went to grade to grade school with, and it's hard to remember them. But you remember it, them a bit about them. It is, but I think I think because he went missing, it kind of intensified what we remembered because he just disappeared and we never heard of him again. But. I mean, he was very quiet. He was very shy. He was a lovely little boy, but all of a sudden he was gone. We just, I've, all, I've, for, since I'm sure Craig's the same. Ever since then, I've, I've wondered every day where he is, what happened to him. One of my better friends in Parkfield, um, his name was Sean. Sean and Simon were probably pretty darn close to best friends, and they went to each other's homes and such. And when we got to school that day, there was police cars in the parking lot and our teachers looked very grim. And there was pretty well most of the kids, not all, but a lot of the kids in grade four, which we were all in, were called down to the principal's office. And I was questioned by myself, by the vice principal, but a lot of them were interviewed by detectives with the principal and VP there. And it was, you know, where, when was the last time you'd seen Simon? Have you heard from him? And my friend Sean said bef- um, that in the middle of the night, they got a phone call from the police asking if Simon was at their house. And that got them going a couple hours before Laura and I would have heard the news over the radio. Yeah, it was all of a sudden, like as I put in the article, you know, you, as a little kid, when you're nine years old, you, you, the world's a pretty safe place. And all of a sudden that just blew up in front of your eyes. Yeah, it's a pretty safe space. It's a pretty small place too, right? And all of a sudden, you know, I, I was looking back at some of the reporting that you found from the Toronto Star about, you know, the the uh, the search, the search mm-hmm. for for him. But they never found they never found anything, did they? They he disappeared. They, they, yeah, they they were focusing on the sewers and the tunnels by his apartment where he lived, because it they used to kids used to play in there. I didn't because it was far enough from where Craig and I lived that I wouldn't we wouldn't have gone down there unless we were visiting a friend down there. Yeah. So, which wasn't very often. And they they didn't, they never found anything, good, bad, or otherwise. So he could have played in there. They probably all did. They didn't find anything by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I remember searchers coming to the door, the mounted unit going up and down the street and through all the local parks and ravines. I mean, certainly I'm not a police officer. I'm not an expert in this, but I could not doubt. Yeah, I could not question the effort the police made. They really tried. And I imagine that that for the rest of your days, both at primary school, but also as you went on, his absence must have been glaring because he sort of was part of your gang, your group, and then he was gone. Exactly. It's one thing if somebody moves away, and you're used to that too. Kids move, families move, but to just vanish and... As Laura said, nothing was found, not a trace, which is 
you know, it, it's frightening because no nine-year-old child just decides to adopt a new identity and, you know, move. Something terrible happened. And the only way he would have had a new identity is what was done for him. And he's not going to know at nine how to do that. So it certainly wasn't, oh, yeah, I'm just going to up and I'm going to go and love Granny now. Yeah. yeah. You must have talked about it as as classmates. I mean, you could not, right? Oh, exactly. And, you know, I got to tell you, things at recess and stuff, I do remember our teachers were, I mean, they were quite diligent. We were lucky to go to that school. There was a lot more children being driven to and from school, I recall, because back then we all walked. We're five minutes up the road, so. <laughs> so was he, he didn't, did he, I mean, he was banished on his way to school, right? He was walking? That's what we, yeah, that's what we heard. His mother said he had left the house just after eight o'clock. Yeah. And just didn't make it. So somewhere between his house and Parkfield, he vanished. Yeah. And he he pretty well walked the same route Laura and I walked to school. I could have been. Yeah. Would have been the same. So Craig, tell me a bit about your, about just your idea to kind of uh, try to look into what was out there about this and this idea of trying to maybe find out what happened or not what happened, but at least try to figure out what was learned. Well, a lot of the credit goes to Laura. We were just talking on Facebook and because with two other friends who would like to remain anonymous and we started talking about Simon. So Laura put together a little Facebook group where we could talk about it. And Laura is the incredible genealogy wizard, so she can find anything. She's actually found some stuff in my family tree. And um, we use that skill. I went to the downtown Hamilton Library, went on to the microfilm, and uh, pulled up new new stories from that time, and then sent Laura the information with, we got parents' names, a sibling's name. You know, Laura started trying to track people down. I just thought, why not do an article? Just um, submitted it to the Toronto Star last week, who jumped all over it. And I think it was very much very local. It's a great mystery, a horrific mystery, if you were part of it, to be honest, as a child. But um, then that was really just it. What did you find when you started to sort of dig in through the genealogical route? What did you end up finding? Well, it took me a, a while because I, I couldn't find out what his parents, other than Mr. and Mrs. Wilson, I had no idea what they were called. So one, luckily, one of the newspaper articles said what they were called. So I've managed to find out a lot, a lot about his father's side. His mother, I have no clue because I have no idea what her maiden name was, and I can't find it for the life of me. His, they're both Northern Irish. So his, his father was one of 10. Most of them are scattered in England or Ireland. Um, some are here, but I have managed to find a few people that have told me bits and pieces to try to piece together. Simon had a half-sister, different father, but I don't know how much his father knew. But that, I believe, is what led to the fact that they were divorced. By the, t- by the time that Simon went missing, Simon's father was married to somebody else. Right. He was living with his, just his mom at that point. Yes, and his sister, and half-sister. His sister. You went to you went to the police as well, and and they said something that I thought was pretty surprising that they'd actually looked at this case recently. Yeah, that, so one of the first things I did when we started talking about it is I messaged the police. I go went on message where everywhere I could find because I thought somebody will have to get back to me. They got back to me, and they were like, "Well, yeah, we've just looked into this recently." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay. So what did you find then? Nothing. Okay. So I've." 
recently in the last three weeks, maybe been back and forth with the lady who is the detective on the case. Everything that I found, I then emailed her with all the information that I'm finding. Because one of the policemen that I spoke to asked me if I knew anything about the family, which I thought was a bit strange because I would have thought they would have known about the family. They would, you yeah. know, they would have yeah. been talking to mom and dad. They would have been, you know, and they, it was implied in the papers that his parents were still together, that it was like happy families. But his parents were divorced and he was remarried by then. Craig, what has yeah. the reaction been from the family? I mean, you're, you're a classmate, so clearly this stayed with you all these years. Uh, have you had any reaction at all from Simon's family? Yes. On um, just last Friday night, a day after the article, I got an email from a person who indicated they were, uh, I, I believe, a first cousin of Simon's. They said a cousin. They indicated that uh, they had known Simon and they missed their curly-haired, mischievous cousin. The person indicated that there's mixed feelings in the family. Some family members are, I believe, upset by the article because it was they felt it was ripping, you know, opening up old wounds where this cousin indicated that they were happy the article was written because, as they said, now the world knows that there was a little boy in, you know, in that in 1975 named Simon Wilson. And they were happy, I, you know, it was brought back out to the forefront. And uh, I haven't heard, of, I haven't heard any, I haven't received any other contact. Um, I've been checking things like letters to the editor and, uh, I haven't seen anything yet in that from in the Toronto Star as of yet. To Craig and Laura, what would you like, ultimately, what would you like to happen here? I think we we want to know what happened to him, whatever that might be. I think, yeah, I mean, hopefully, Laura has said it well to our group. Somebody out there knows something. And maybe that article will prompt somebody to pick even... You know, I'm speaking on my own here. Pick up the phone and call the police and said, hey, you know what? I was in jail in the, you know, I don't know, in 1978. And my cellmate told me this. Mm -hmm. Something. Other people have said to me, they think somebody knows something as well. And they're just not saying. Yeah. Well, Craig Wallace Uh, and Laura Brown, thank you so much for uh, providing the story, the context, your story. And uh, I'll hope to check in again with you one day soon. Hopefully you find out what you're looking for. Well, thank you so much for uh, having us on, Ben. Speaking of respecting, one is always told to respect one's elders. But I'm sure you've all been there. You've been at a grocery store waiting in line to pay. And you get stuck beside someone taking their time, chatting with the cashier or the person bagging groceries. If you still have that luxury at your grocery store, it can be frustrating, right? And yet we all know. We all know that social isolation and loneliness is one of the most serious issues facing a lot of people, not just older people in this country, but certainly older people um, here right around the world, everywhere we have aging populations, essentially, and, and beyond. In this country alone, census data shows that almost one in four people aged 65 or older live alone, and about half over the age of 80 report feeling lonely. That's according to a report from the National Seniors Council. So what can you do about it? What can you do to alleviate social isolation in this era, this era of digital stuff, this era of self-checkouts, this era of smaller families scattered, this era of people living on their own? 
people divorce and so forth, just people growing old by themselves. Often they have great networks of friends, but ultimately they're at home alone. Well, there are many different ways of doing it, some elaborate and some painfully simple, like the next one. A grocery chain in the Netherlands called Jumbo jumped in and created something they call the Kletzkasse. My Dutch isn't very good, but Kletzkasse or chat checkout. It's tailored to customers not in a rush, but who want to linger for some time, perhaps even have a chat with the person serving them. This all started in 2019 as part of the Dutch government's One Against Loneliness campaign. It's proven so popular that by the end of this year, they will have chat checkouts in 200 locations across the Netherlands. So what to make of that idea? What other solutions are out there? We thought we would look into this because I found this to be such a fascinating initiative. And joining me now is Nora Spinks. She's CEO of Work-Life Harmony and former CEO of the Vanier Institute of the Family. Thank you for your time. My pleasure to be here. I know we've talked about this quite a bit. Social isolation is a huge problem for seniors in many countries. We've been talking about the Netherlands, but clearly Canada faces many of the same issues with a with a growing older population. And uh, many of those folks have smaller families. There's just um, isolation's an issue. There's a couple of things that contribute to that phenomenon. One is the aging population. Another is the fact that our families are significantly smaller. Our families are more mobile. And so even if you come from and have family members, they may not be close to you. And oftentimes our connections, our social connections and our social engagements are with another. So it's much easier to go to a party or to go to a club or to join a gym if you've got somebody to go with you. But there are a number of things that contribute to the reality. One of them is our health change. And so as we age, our mental health, our brain health, and our physical health do change. And so there's a couple of things that people can do to make sure that that doesn't become an impediment to social engagement. So making sure you can see and hear. So go to your doctor's appointments, use your hearing aids, wear your glasses, have a spare pair if you can, so that those health changes don't impact your ability to, to connect. We can also become isolated because of loss of mobility or loss of transportation, so we can't drive anymore, or because public transit is too expensive or too awkward to get to. It might be that that it prevents us from accessing services where we can often meet other people or just to places that historically individuals had an opportunity to either establish connections or make friends or or deepen relationships. For example, you know, most people in Canada no longer are part of a faith community. And it used to be that you had this regular rhythm and you had the regulars and you got to meet people. And, and from there, there's the rituals, the traditions, and, and that puts people together. So without that, isolation increases. And there's three others. One is, is fewer resources. So you don't have the money to go to places. You might not have the language or you just might be experiencing ageism where you're not feeling welcome. So there's a number of causes of social isolation that result in loneliness. 
And the impact we know, and we've found out more and more about this for, at all ages, by the way, but certainly uh, for those who are older, the impact can be detrimental. I think the WHO has compared it to smoking in some ways in terms of the impact it can have. Very much so. And we know that as you increase your isolation, your mental health, brain health, and physical health do deteriorate. So you're not as physically active because you're not out and about. Your brain health, you're not stimulated, you're not engaged. And we know that you can stave off cognitive decline by being more socially active and physically active. So you combine those two and you're going to impact your brain health. But we also know that of all the research is pretty clear that about half the people that identify that they are lonely or experiencing loneliness have fair or poor mental health. That's half. That's a big number. So if you think about it, just to get a, a, a sense in this country, about one in 10 people in Canada say that they're often or always lonely. And that's not a surprise because about 4.4 million people live alone. That's a lot of people who have the high risk of social isolation and loneliness. And then we saw the impact, of course, of the the height of the pandemic. So now we have health concerns for some of those who who feel isolated as well. And now we... been reading recently just about the impact of inflation. So as you were mentioning earlier, the financial restrictions sometimes uh, that seniors feel not able to go out and spend money to to sort of be out there, so to speak. Uh, but the combination of both the pandemic, so health concerns and inflation, financial concerns, must just make it worse, I would think. Well, it's really hard to join a seniors club or, you know, go to the pool regularly and get exercise if you can't afford the fees to get there or the transportation plus the fees to get there. But I also think it's important to recognize that you can be experiencing loneliness when you're alone, like we've been talking about, you live alone, your social network tends to shrink dramatically as you age because your kids move away, your friends and and partner may pass away. So your, your community shrinks. So you can be alone, but you can also be alone living with somebody. So if you're a caregiver and you're providing care for somebody, you can experience extreme loneliness, even though you're living with somebody. So it's alone, alone, but caregiving. And then there's alone in a crowd. And this is something we learned a lot about during COVID is that you may live in a congregate community, in a senior's home, in a retirement residence but you are alone because of circumstances like COVID where you can't get out, or you can be alone in a crowd because you're in a dining hall and you don't know anybody and you're not sure how to engage. And we're seeing this in particular with men. And so there are new programs popping up across the country that are targeting explicitly reducing loneliness in men. So there's a program like the Men's Shed, which is across the country. And these are senior men that get together to hang out, to do community projects. Service club involvement is back up again. Kiwanis, Rotary, et cetera. Right. Um, Lions Clubs. Because it's a, it's a place that doesn't cost you a lot of money. And you can have regular connections with other people that aren't just your age, but also younger as well. 
Nora Spinks is with us this half hour. She is CEO of Work-Life Harmony and former CEO of the Vanier Institute of the Family. We're talking about social isolation among seniors in this country and elsewhere, a big problem in many countries with an aging population, smaller families, a lot more stuff online, changing patterns of how we socialize, for instance. Um, Nora, I was really just, I of course, saw this article about these uh, Kletz Casa or chat checkouts that this grocery store in Holland had created. It was sort of part of a government initiative surrounding social isolation and loneliness. What do you make of that idea? It's interesting to see private companies step into a space and try to provide interaction for those who need it. Yeah, you know, and and private enterprise is looking at ways to create environments where people feel included. So in part, it's an anti-racism approach. In part, there's it's just pure vested interest as a, as a company. Seniors are part of the economy. Uh, you don't want to exclude them. If you create these opportunities for engagement, they will frequent those lines. For younger folks in their 20s and 30s, they might want to go through self-checkout, get in, get out. They, they'll they just pull up to the door and have the groceries or whatever dropped in their trunk and, and carry on. Others, going out and going through those active daily living, the basic shopping, the banking, gives them an opportunity to have those connections. And so you'll now see frequently in bank branches a teller where there's a chair where people can sit down and actually have a more in-depth conversation. We're seeing programs not just in private enterprise, but also in community. So opening the doors in churches again or community centers where you can now go into a restaurant and ask for a solo table or you're dining solo, but you'd like to be put in a group table. So there's these kinds of approaches. There can be an economic benefit for some of these companies, but governments are also getting involved in solutions and strategies. So the UK has had a minister of loneliness now for several years. That's right. And they report on an annual basis on how, what strategies they put in place and how they've actually reduced the incidence of loneliness. And they've come up with a number of sort of suggestions for communities to be able to uh, increase social engagement. So other than the, the basic you know, join a club, join a group, go to the gym, know your neighbors. They're also saying governments need to provide more accessible or free public transit, that governments need to fund or encourage the presence of connectors, people who will make those kinds of connections with people. And a concept that's growing across this country is the concept of social prescribing, I was part of a webinar recently um, out of Alberta, and we were including on the panel was somebody that was describing this emerging national association of people whose job it is to social prescribe and to make these connections and to be facilitators and, and to be those sort of bridge makers. Yeah, it's so necessary because it's hard to take the first step, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, socializing is a skill and it's a skill that can can blunt over the years, right? And um, when you look at something like these chat 
checkouts. I, I mean, I realize it, it. Do you think they'd be effective? I mean, is is a conversation is the ability to walk into a grocery store and not feel like you're being pressured to go really quickly, as is often the case in many in many establishments, where I feel like you look at seniors doing their daily shop or so on, and you feel like they're being rushed, right? Because everything around them is rushing. Uh, do you think creating that that individual space where things can slow down a little bit, they can have a chat, ask some questions. Do you think that's effective or is it just good publicity? No, I I think it's very effective. And, uh, you know, the research is really clear. These kinds of simple interventions can have a huge impact on people's feelings of loneliness, feelings of inclusion, opportunities for engagement, and then that ripple effect that we talked about, physical health, mental health, and um, brain health. You know, we talk a lot when we talk about having children in our communities that it takes a village. It also takes a village to age well. It takes a, a culture where aging is honored, where people, as they age, have dignity and feel that they're being respected. And these kinds of interventions, whether they're in the community or offered by government or supported in uh, by families or in the private sector, helps to create that community for aging well. And I think, you know, every cause of loneliness or circumstance related to loneliness has a different kind of solution that's going to be effective. But it also falls on each of us. And one of the things that we know is that as we age, those social networks are going to start to shrink. So we can start planning ahead. Soon-to-be seniors can start establishing these social networks and joining clubs and joining groups, not when they're 80, but when they're 50, and start creating these networks of social connections outside of our workplace because that's where most of us in middle adulthood have our connections is through workplaces, through employment, get pets. We know that if you're walking your dog to the park, you are going to have a conversation, plan for it. We know at some point, each and every one of us is going to experience some kind of loss, whether it's a friend, a sibling, a parent, a a spouse. We know that's going to happen. Don't wait for that to happen and go, oh, gee, I don't have any friends anymore. Plan for that. We can prepare for that. We can work our our social, our recreational, our cultural connections long before we reach the point where our personal circles of support start to shrink. It's great that you mentioned that. We spent so much time planning for retirement financially and so little time planning for retirement socially. Anora Spinks, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.